1: Welcome to Star Wars Minute. It's our podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and celebrate the Star Wars saga. I'm Alex Robinson from ComicBookAlex.com.
3: And I'm Pete the Retailer from NerdGeekDork.com.
1: And we're back with another bonus episode. That's right. Uh, Yes?
3: Tide you over. Here's another Uh, snack.
1: Another little snack until we come back for reels in January. So uh, we're getting all excited about that. Looking forward to discussing Sarlax, Bib Fortuna, General Madine, and all the gang.
3: I'm, I'm excited about some uh, some prune faces, maybe some <laughs> – you got your nine and ten. Um, so we'll, we'll get there.
1: Some ishy tips.
3: Yeah, a little ishy tib <laughs> on the side.
1: <laughs> um, but before we come back, we want to remind you we also have a compa- – not a companion podcast, but we did another podcast uh, called Alphabetical, which – it drops on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, usually, usually. And uh, that's where we discuss the Beatles one song at a time, every song alphabetically from twelve to y,
3: yeah, strangely similar in scope to this, except uh, a different different subject matter
1: different subject matter, a little a little more obscure subject matter. But uh, you should check it out, especially if you're a fan of the Fab foe,
3: yeah. that's me and Alex and our friends Adam and John.
1: And an occasional uh, substitute uh, substitute beetle comes in. a
3: fill-in guest every once in a while. It's a a good fun. It's a a good fun. I don't know what I meant by that.
1: (laughs) It is a good fun. Yes. Uh, So, and also, the holiday season's coming up. Why not look into getting a Star Wars Minute t-shirt for that nerd on your list?
3: That's true. We're we're back to full stock levels. Uh, There was a little bit of a hiccup there for a little while where... uh, Ran out of a couple of sizes, but we're fully stocked, ready for Christmas. So,
1: Yes, so uh, let's go to StarWarsMinute.com slash merch. Is, is that still a going thing?
3: It's always going.
1: All right. Uh, and also StarWarsMinute.com slash Amazon if you want to give us a little Christmas present by uh, giving us a kickback from all your Amazon purchases.
3: That's true. You can get presents for your family and for us at the same time.
1: Yes, exactly. And we're almost like family. I yeah. mean,
3: I mean, you know, we're there every morning for you. Well, not currently, but we will be <laughs> starting in January.
1: So, all right, should we get to the meat of today's episode? Sure. This will be especially of interest to fans of the podcast because this guy has been with us from the start. He's kind of the kind of the honorary third Star Wars minute host.
3: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. it's uh, you know, if you listen to us every morning, you've listened to this guy every morning too.
1: It's our old friend Dan Whitley, the captain of the Rebel Force band who does our theme song.
3: Yeah, Alex and I were really, you know, we, we looked into the, uh, you know, because we listened to the album, but even when it's not uh, just the theme song, you know. Every morning we'd, we yeah. listen to it. We crank it up. Uh, you know, it's a great Star Wars kind of novelty album. And, uh, and so we, you know, we went and, you know, did some research and figured out, all right, you know, who did this? Who is the Rebel Force Band? Who's Dan Whitley? Uh, we managed to get in touch with him and uh, lined up an interview, which, uh, which you're about to hear. And if you want to check out the album before or during the interview, uh, after the interview, uh, just go to starwarsminute.com slash theme. That'll take you right to the Amazon page for it, and uh, and you can buy it from there. Same deal. We get a little cut. It's a good album, and, and it'll support Dan. He, as, as you'll hear, he's, he's just excited for the music to be out there.
1: Uh, anything else we want to say before we head on over to the interview?
3: Uh, no, that's pretty much it. We got some other, you know, Plan is in the works, so you'll you'll be hearing from us uh, between now and January, I think.
1: And now here's our interview with Dan Whitley. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Well, I, uh, I do a lot of interesting things, but uh, this particular one, I was thinking about, you know, why I really did the project, and and I think uh, you're inquisitive minds may appreciate why someone would do something like that.
1: <laughs> well, should we just jump right in then? And uh...
2: Just whatever you want. You ask questions, and, uh, and if I think we're going a different direction, well, I'll change the direction.
1: Okay, so um,
2: right.
1: I guess, uh, why don't you just tell us about how the uh, project came
2: about? Well... Um, Let me just kind of tell you how I got into the business, which might be interesting. Um, I was going to college, um, and I was hired uh, by a a very popular group uh, in the '70s, uh, '60s, and '70s called the Letterman. Uh, Two of the two of the fellows went to to college with me, and not the same time, but they we went to the same college. And uh, I happened to run into one when they were performing um, in San Francisco, and uh, they offered me a job to play bass for them. And and so I started touring with the Letterman, and uh, then when I uh, ended my tour, I ended up moving to Los Angeles and um, starting my career. I formed a couple of groups. I formed a little group called the Justice Brothers, and they recorded, believe it or not, uh, at Glen Glen Sound, and I worked with John Neal, and John Neal was one of the main engineers on the first two episodes of Star Wars and worked right with Lucas, so I had the chance of working with him, and I, I actually sat in on a session with Barbara Streisand recording Evergreen. <laughs> so. I kind of cut my teeth with a lot of big wigs. All of a sudden, it happened pretty quick.
1: How old were you about that time?
2: Oh, I was in my 20s, early 20s. Okay. And so um, then the Justice Brothers, you know, they existed as a band for about 10 years. I did a musical called Open Any Door with John Neal producing at Glen Glen Sound. Glen Glen Sound, so you know where it is, it's at Paramount Pictures. And it also was the home of uh, Lucio Baldez-Arnaz and, uh, you know, the TV show. Right. And so we used the nine-foot uh, Steinway Grand from the Lucio Baldez-Arnaz show. Every time that there was a downtime, John Neal would put us in and we did our little project, with, which, you know, had a degree of, of fame to it. But after I'd done that and worked in, the, in those situations, I started doing some independent work and ended up buying a piece of property on Colfax and Ventura in Studio City. Across mm-hmm. the street, uh, one of the members of the Letterman, Bob Ingeman, his his brother was the vice president of Capitol Records at the time, and he was the liaison for the Beach Boys and for the Beatles in '64. And, uh, you know, they were pretty competitive. They were both on Capitol Records.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: And uh, so I, you know, was exposed to that. I actually auditioned one of my, a group of my songs uh, at Capitol Records for Perry Bodkins Jr. And he sat and I uh, sang with this little group, you know, 10 or 20 songs. And then he sat up and said, I don't know why he listened to all of them. He says, "Well, it's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I know about Barry Bodkin Jr. Do you know who he is? I'm not familiar with him. Pete, do you? No. He's the one who wrote Nadia's theme. Oh, right. Okay,
3: that's yeah, but...
2: his big—that's his big deal. Hmm. So I was bashing around and you know thinking I had some talent and and um, so then all of a sudden I uh, purchased this uh, uh, property right across the street." Uh, because um, Carl and Bobby started a thing called independent recorders. They did uh, um, average, the average white band, and they did, well, uh, oh, I mean, it just lots and lots of hits. And I did some recording. I actually did my first album at their studio before I bought my studio. And um, I ran into, through Carl, he hired a man that really had a huge. Um, impression on me he produced the beach boys and uh in, the, uh, like in, in what era the, uh right when they were doing gypsy tramps and thieves hmm. and good vibrations uh jimmy lockhart so okay. i had a chance to work with him on my first album and he did some engineering for me and uh, he virtually made a fool of me you know and uh when we finished the whole recording, he came up to me and he said something that really I'm saying to you and your audience, whatever that may be. He told me, he said, where is the nothing?
3: Where's the nothing?
2: Where's the nothing? You know, when they do that good vibrations, I'm picking up vid vibrations, nothing. Good, 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 good vibrations. <laughs> you know where it goes there, where nothing right. happens. Right. Well. He, he just laid it on me. He said, you have nothing in here that has nothing <laughs> too much, something there's too, too much of whatever it is. And, and he was, he was really, he was really amazing. Uh, but at the time I was, you know, young and deeply offended. So, but, uh, I think between Jim and... Uh, well, Bob Ingeman was probably my biggest influence because of all the millions of records that he sold. He just recently passed away. Oh. and um, But he was my mentor and gave me my first job in the business. And then I met a lot of people through him and his brother that were amazing. Well, then after that happened, I was producing some independent things. I made a relationship with um, uh, Devonshire Sound. Uh, which was in North Hollywood. And of course, I'm a contemporary with with um, Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers, um, I had a studio in Laurel Canyon and Kenny Rogers and had just left um, the Christie Minstrels. And one of my other friends, in fact, one of the fellows, was working with Kenny Rogers um, in the Christie Minstrels, and he became the director uh, of the music for the Osmonds. And the first Donnie Marie show. And he was a friend of mine that that grew up with me. And when he was nine years old, he played the bass for me and he played the bass for the Osmonds. Oh,
0: wow. Hmm.
2: So, and he's on the album. He actually did some of the arranging because when the Donnie Marie show was being recorded for the first time is when I produced Star Wars. That was in 77, right around then. Right. And so uh, all these people were all buzzing around these studios. And just as a, a fun little point, down the street was Richie Pobler. Do you remember him?
3: Uh, the name sounds kind of familiar. He
2: produced The Three Dog Night. Oh, okay. And Born to be Wild and all kinds of huge rock and roll stuff. Mm-hmm. And we were you know, we were like three, blo- well, three or four blocks away from each other. There was like five studios right in that one little corner there between Colfax and Ventura and Studio City. Huh. Uh, you're from New York, so you won't even know what I'm talking about, but that's <laughs> yeah. your audience. And, and Star Wars, I, just for fun, I went in and looked at some of the videos. There's actually a video of someone from 1977. Uh, if you go online, say a tape of the Star Wars movie in the theater made on a cassette player. <laughs> and so oh, they wow. put all kinds of pictures. Well, that's how I was introduced. Um you know, to star Wars was in a drive in theater mm. and, and in it Los was Angeles. Crazy. In, in Los Angeles. Yeah. I was in San Fernando Valley and I didn't go to the movie on my own. A friend of mine who actually wrote the little theme song you guys are using, which by the way, we're flattered that anyone would even use it. That was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but his name was Gary Waite and he was a dentist in Las Vegas and I knew him when he was a kid. And he came to LA. I was producing this guy nobody ever heard of because he'd never got a hit record. But his name was John David Byron. And uh, he came in, and I was at Devonshire Sound because I had a working relationship with them. And Terry Rangno was my engineer, and we were just doing stuff and you know making money, producing records.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And this guy walks in and he says, "Have you ever heard of Star Wars?" And I said, "No." He said, "I want to show you this," and he's <laughs> living in these Star Wars. And that's all he had. <laughs> so you, so you heard, you heard the song before you. Before actually saw I didn't even, I didn't even know the movie. Wow. And he huh. said, "You got to see this." Well, after you know, and he came to me and and said, "Here, here's a thousand dollars." Made me a track. You know, because I was good at making tracks, and I knew all the musicians, and we could do it on a pretty regular basis. I had my own studio. But um, so for you, this I went just into the drive. Of... Go ahead.
1: I was say so for you. This it sounds like this was just kind of like another project. It wasn't like well, you were specifically I, it, inspired or.
2: It, it, well, it, I'm trying to get to the point, but by laying a foundation that I was. You know, back in the analog days, I mean, you did couldn't go in your basement. You had to have a relationship with a studio. The studio, Devonshire Sound, was $213, 215 an hour, unless you had a deal with a the guy, then it was 150 an hour. Oh. And the different engineers, like um, when Donnie Marie, it was right when Donnie Marie came down and Ike was working with me. Ike Egan was the arranger. He's on the back of the album cover. And do you guys have a real uh, vinyl? Did you ever go? Uh, no, I only have
0: it digitally. Pete,
2: yeah,
3: yeah, I, I have it yes. digitally. I've been watching them on on eBay. They go they go through every once in a while, but they're. Uh-
2: yeah, well, I have a couple left. I probably if if you, you know my goal would be to to find a, an interesting outlet um, to tell people about how it came about and why it came about, and I haven't even gotten to that. <laughs> but and then you know, funnel it so that possibly some of the things, you know, that, I mean, that same type of sound could be before I die, uh, could be generated again. And the other characters that have been introduced, all we did was take, it was inspired by um, my uh, five-year-old son. He uh, went to the drive-in theater and I had this kid that sang this living in the star wars thing for me and i thought it was clever so i said i would take a a listen to it and i go to the movie so i put my tape recorder on and recorded the whole movie while we were with the kids in the drive-in theater and my five-year-old son was just captivated by it so he became you know my interest he had my name he's dan whitley as well as me and so the the story goes and then I'll because it seems like it's appropriate to say it now that when my 5-year-old son became so captivated with this we didn't realize at the time that he had a terminal illness here I am producing records acting great and walking around you know producing this and going there and all of a sudden my son would became fascinated by this movie well in the same neighborhood, um, right across the the freeway, uh, the Hollywood freeway, the Ventura freeway in Hollywood on the other side, um, David Gates from Bread lived. One of his neighbors had kids the same age as our kids, and they would play with one another. And he was like a big, huge executive in the aerospace or something. And they every year they had to do something, um, you know, for a tax write-off. And so he wanted to make a, a real nice tax write-off, so we wouldn't have to pay taxes that year. And I showed him the little copy of this living in the Star Wars thing. Right. And he said, "That's a great idea." And of course, all the kids, the movie was out. It was Christmas coming up, and the toy companies had not had a chance to create any toys. So they were selling. All right. Buy it for Christmas. We'll send it to you in March.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the
3: infamous empty box. Really
2: yeah, the empty. B- yeah, with a paper in it. <laughs> and so my son was so taken by this. I I talked to uh, Michael uh, Purdy, and and his wife was the one the kids were taken by it. He thought it was kind of stupid, but she was a Star Wars fan, and I had done this little thing for uh, uh, Dr. Waite. Um, and I had this one single thing, that your theme song. And we tried, we did, we recorded it two different ways because, you know, we did a disco, you know, because 70, 79 was the king of disco. You right,
3: know? you had to have disco at that point. So we
2: put a disco on there in case, because some of the people would go to these big discotheques down there and they wanted to have some of the right beat so right. they could do their dances to it, and then they'd mimic the characters. Hmm. Huh. So we had, we had such a crazy deal with that. But anyway, the premise of what my interest was is that my kids and her, the, the Michael Purdy, who hired me and paid me very well to go in, and he said, how about taking these characters? Because the characters were so strong and so unique. I mean, people couldn't even say R2-D2. But he came to me, and he said, "If I give you a check, will you come up with an album so we can sell it, and it's just gonna be for kids and when they play with their Star Wars guys, they can listen to this album and I said, Well, that sounds good and and you know, and he was paying me very handsomely, so I took on the project
1: wow. so the the only actual song at this point was the main theme, and the That's disco it. version of the main yeah, theme. it
2: was a disco well, it was a vocal adaption. And we sang the vocal. It was a copyrighted part. So the da, 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 da. See, you know, da, 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 da. See, that's (laughs) not even in there. And so we took it and we just kind of messed with it. But uh, when I worked at uh, Paramount Pictures, they had uh, these amazing Moog synthesizer guys that were making sound effects. Because once this thing hit, um, you know, 20th century had the rights to lucas films right and and all this stuff, and Paramount Pictures wanted to figure out how they made all the sounds, so my friend that did my project open any door which was which was a musical play is what it was um he um he said, "I got some sound effects. I have a library here, and let me give you some so he gave me the sound of the of the uh, the laser guns oh nice. Uh, And they had copied them because they were trying to do the same kind of laser guns because it was so early uh, for, uh, I think it was, um, oh, they did some television copy of Star Wars. uh, Probably Battlestar Galactica, Galactica, I think Mm -hmm. it was. And so they were doing something and they came up with those gunshot things. So I said, well, that's interesting. Well, I, you know, I had started my studio. I had rented the back out to a guy that was an engineer for Boston, and he was from Brazil, and he'd worked with Boston, the, the group. And so he'd rented the back of my studio, and then the front part of the studio, I had a little studio of my own where I did a lot of my stuff. I did all the string overdubs and things there, and it opened up to regular clients, you know, because it was back in the day of the 24-track and all that junk.
1: Huh. So so you're um, so at this point they say hey let's make a whole album we got these two songs so did you guys then have to sit down and crank out uh, more
2: well, songs? Well, about- well, I I I had taped the the movie with my son or the whole movie, and so he went in and said, well, let's do this. Well, I I had a a, a company called Band Aid where. Uh, uh, this is before LA was depressed, where there was no gigs, where people couldn't make a living as a professional musician. My my son's down there now, and there's no gigs. If you want to play, you pay to play. Mm. And and down there back in those days, there were tons of people in the aerospace business and accounting, and it was you know it was pretty good times in the '70s for, as far as the economy and stuff. Not like now. And so uh, so what happened is is that. Um, I went to my little band. I had my annual band audition because I booked all the high schools and churches and weddings and bar mitzvahs and all kinds of stuff. And I had 17 or 18 different bands. And so when I got all the guys together, I just uh, uh, told them that I was doing a project on Star Wars and I came up with titles. I came up with all the titles, a Respirator for Darth Vader, <laughs> um, Chewy the Rookie Wookie. I came up with all these titles, and I flew it out to all, There's about 150 musicians that worked with me uh, that I booked casual gigs with. Well, two of the guys at the meeting, one of them's name was Patrick Michael Matthews, and he had a really high voice like the singer with the Beach Boys, you know, the Brian Wilson voice. Mm-hmm. Right and then then the other was gary mcgee was his bass player he was kind of a Dorfus uh, <laughs> as far as talent but he could sing harmony a little bit and so i went most of my stuff was based around well i put this out and uh, uh matthews came back with don't fall in love with an android and with the Chewy, the Rookie Wookie, he took that title and came up with a terrific hook on it, and then I put the rest of the song together based on what you know he came up with, and then so I signed signed them both as writers
0: mm-hmm.
2: and as um, um, artists, and decided to just give it a try. Well. I came back, went to Michael Purdy, and Michael Purdy fell over when he heard Chewie the Rookie Wookiee, you know. And then yeah. I said to myself, well, I've got to make a sound like a Wookiee, <laughs> and I had no idea how to make a Wookiee sound. And so I found this guy who was a, a voiceover. He lived right there in Studio City. And uh, so I said, can you make this sound? And I played him the, the cassette tape from the movie. He hadn't even heard of the uh, movie. Wow. And so I said, Oh, yeah, I can do anything. And he's this big, heavy set guy with a little mustache. I mean, he's just an amazing guy. And so to make it sound right, um, we turned on the mic in the studio and I said, Here's the sound, copy it. And so all the Wookiee sounds were him. Oh, wow. Huh. And then, then, then the respirator for Darth Vader, what we did was we, we took the pacing, the beat, of Darth Vader's breathing when he came in that. (sighs) So we had him breathe like that. And to get it to sound right, we stuck a microphone, a 414, down inside a 55-gallon drum, (laughs) which was our garbage can. And And he would breathe with the beat. So the entire uh, respirator for Darth Vader has that breathing. That's Brian Cummings with a loop.
3: He didn't have to sit there and breathe the whole No, track, we just right? looped, it. looped it. We
2: okay. looped it and the whole song. And then, then I brought in a 14-year-old guitar player that loved Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. And I said, now, come up with a hot lick that'll, that sounds like Darth Vader. And, and we showed it to him and said, here's the tempo. And then there was this great drummer. Uh, he did all my drumming. Mark Evans. He did engineering. And he was from Orem, Utah okay and of course uh i'm from salt lake when i but i went into hollywood you know when i was hired mm-hmm. out of college and uh so i lived down there for 17 years but then all of a sudden kaboom uh he came up with a drum beat you know for the respirator for darth vader and then i didn't know who i was going to get to sing it and one of my singers from my 17 17 or 18 bands that i had uh jim mooney uh was a real good guitar player, lead guitar player, and I just put him on that, and he sang it because a respirator for that man. you know how that works, yeah, <laughs> and so he was able to pull that off and so this fourteen year old Led Zeppelin guy put the hot lick together and and he sang to it. And then we tried to just take things from the story to do the lyrics, and that's what my job was, Right. and to make sure the sounds were right. Uh, And then, you know, and then, where is my respirator, you know, and all that, (laughs) that's all Brian Cummings copying the sound. Did you have to, like, clear this with Lucasfilm, or were you guys Uh, kind of Well, we didn't even think about it. We didn't even think about it.
3: Right. That sounds familiar.
2: You know, but, (laughs) you know, I mean, we were just doing it as a joke. Yeah, you know, and this guy wanted a write-off, so I had a legitimate company, and so I could write three or four hundred thousand. I I almost uh, could write off up to a half a million because it was so expensive to record in Hollywood. Right, and I had my own studio, and so you know he gave me half as much as that, and I gave him a good write-off. So we just had a playtime, and every time I got something, I took it to my five-year-old son. And if he liked it, then I would do it.
1: Huh. He was your test audience.
2: He was my test, you know. And he, the Star Wars guys, the first box of Star Wars guys, he would sit there and play with Darth Vader and play that song.
0: Wow.
2: So that's, we got, and the Purdy's got so excited about it that they even hired a marketing company. And we did a, a you know, like, you know, the, the things you see on TV where you advertise a little product for 19 you know.
3: Oh, right. a The guy
2: pitches it. So we actually ran it for one week. We thought it was going to take off, and it just laid flat as an egg, you know. So anyway, I don't think that they really planned on promoting it. What they did is they promoted it and did the video so they could justify more write-off. Right, Right. That's what their goal was.
1: Do you by any chance remember any of the songs that your um son vetoed?
2: Well, we wouldn't let him veto it. We tried to pick the characters mm-hmm. uh and do it around it so but if he didn't like something, then I would make sure and change it oh okay. because you know the project you know back when you had to do every overdub you know no synthesizers no i mean there was synthesizer but no uh you know, computers that you could lay a sound in and, and shop, you know, online yeah, for sound.
0: Right.
2: You know, it's just nothing like that. You either made it or you didn't make it. But between the sound library, between Brian Cummings, and, you know, all the players that I had working for me are these amateur guitar players. That's why I had so many guitar players on there. Because if I came up with someone that had a particular lick where we would... We just, you know, use them and put them on online. The one little guy that did the Darth Vader one was named Tom Hopkins, hmm. and and Tom he did a, a fantastic job at doing that. But he was so young, his guitar went out of tune so bad that we, you know, that we just had to figure it out. And so there's all kinds of people that played all different right. parts because, you know, we were just doing it for fun.
0: Yeah.
3: It sounds almost like, you know, the, the making of this album kind of mirrors the making of Star Wars itself, that it's, you know, you, you had to, you know, in order to make this thing, you got a bunch of guys that you knew who all did, you know, different, they were experts in different things and, and you actually had to go out there and do it and, you know, kind of make do with what you had and figure out.
2: Yeah, and the first Star Wars episode, you know, uh, Lucas didn't have really much of a budget. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, he had this incredible this is what i think captivated my son and of course it's amazing that once uh danny got sick at six and had his first brain surgery and he was in bed a lot he probably listened to my record and to star wars the movie and thought they were the same mm. i mean i mean he would just watch it over and over. And and of course the thing that was so refreshing for my boy, especially at six, when you face death, I mean that's exactly what what happened, you know, when they were you know stuck in the in the um, whatever that squeeze machine is, you know, where they were going to kill them all, right? And you know, there all those little conflicts and and uh, you know getting out of it, and then of course when the next movie came out. Uh, and they invited, and they introduced Yoda, then uh, he wanted me to do something on Yoda. Of course, I didn't have any backing, so it was way too expensive to do what we did. It's amazing we could even do it. But, um, you know, because he liked Yoda, because that's when Obi-Wan Kenobi dies, and when he, you know, shows the audience that, you know, that there's life after death, and of course, that made him feel better. Mm. And so... I kind of had that, you know, subtle realization that that some of those things, like the song, may the force be with you, you know, was almost like a prayer, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, that was something that he liked to play because, you know, it meant, it meant something to him at his age, you know, five and six and seven, and he could understand it. You know, the white guys were the, the bad guys. And yet the, the good guys were called the rebels. So see, that was Lucas and his genius, changing those names around, making the good guys, you know, one way. And, and of course, Darth Vader, the, you know, the statue of, of conflict and all that. And so we just took those fighter pilots and created a band. And, and I actually found a photo of the original band that I took for publicity. And in all the years, there's only been one live performance oh, wow. of the band and the music. And it was in <clears throat> Oxnard, California. And it was in a club, we found out, that was dying. So the money they promised, they wrote us on, on a rubber check. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that's the only performance where we did all the songs.
3: Wow. You did all of them? And yeah, we a... did
2: the whole concert. We did it, uh, you know, four sets. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, and they were wearing their jumpsuits. So we took publicity photos, thinking, well, maybe something will happen. Uh, <laughs> you know, but the but the premise of the whole you know of the whole thing boiled right down to the different characters, and we did one on Luke. You know, you are a warrior in the Star Wars. You know that thing. Yeah, right. And and Ike Egan, the the engineer that was doing the the or the uh, you know, musician that went down to do the first Donny Marie show. He did the string arrangements on Chewy. Dr. Nemento picked up on it. Oh, I do have to tell you this one story. And that is, uh, you know, Mike Borchetta was a record promoter that had worked. He produ- he was the one that worked for all- producing and, uh, getting on the radio, all the Letterman hits. He did rhinestone cowboy for Glenn Campbell, and he's in Nashville now. He has a he he discovered Tim McGraw. Hmm. So wow. uh, he was a friend of mine and did promotion for me. So we talked the Purdys into promoting it. Well, Star Wars uh, had gotten so big that they decided to have a a an, an opener, a, a premiere opening at Grahams Chinese. And I was just looking online, and they have photos of the Star Wars characters getting their feet in the concrete.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah, we just saw that when we were out visiting Los Angeles this past summer.
2: Well, when they had that premiere, that the first time played in the Gromach Chinese Theater, that premiere, Borchetta took singles of Chewie the Rookie Wookie and Living in the Star Wars as a flip side and handed it free to every person that went in the movie. Oh, wow. And so here we were with these, you know, Chewie didn't have anything to do, uh, you know, and you can't copyright a t- t- title, mm-hmm. and characters, you know. But by the time we got through the whole thing, I got a call from the legal department at Twentieth Century Fox, and they didn't even know what to do with me because <laughs> <laughs> I had I had no, I had nothing, uh, you know, that was John Williams, nothing, right? Sure. And so. Uh, we sat down, and I, and I, I talked to the Purdies and I said, what would you like to do on this? I said, license with them. So we <laughs> licensed. Well, meanwhile, it took so long to get to the legal department, and we changed a few things on the album cover. So I have two album covers, the original, and then I have the one that 20th Century, okay, that we actually put 20th Century Fox on the back because they wanted a piece of the action. But by that, by then, we'd lost our energy over the project, and it's just, you know, all the albums laid in a box.
0: So, Hmm. So
3: What was the difference between the two? Like, what did they want to change?
2: Well, they just wanted to make sure that none of this music is contained in the film score or anything of John Williams. Right. You know, they had a couple things. So I could run a scan, and, you know, I don't know what you guys, you guys are just, you know, interested parties. I mean, one of these days, if someone really wants to, you know Star Wars when Disney brings out the new Star Wars it's probably going to be a time for someone to go in and say here's something from 77 <laughs> you know here's the story here's the crazy man that that saw that it got done and
1: uh have
2: at it <laughs> <laughs>
1: well well i have to ask uh, i'm sure everyone is begging me mm-hmm. to ask this question. Are there any plans for a follow-up? Given that Star Wars uh, is now,
2: a you know, the, the only thing that would make this work, and it would take young blood like you guys, you know. But I could, if there was someone that could really finance something mm-hmm. like this. I mean, I have a little lady online, and I, you know, I'm so flattered that she would even take the time to copy it off of a vinyl and put it out and say, listen to it for fun. You know, I mean, it, it has nothing to do with hoarding. It has everything to do with a little boy with cancer. Who's going to die. Who was comforted by seeing the movies that Lucas produced. And his dad happened to make a buck by writing some parody songs about the characters, hmm. that's what I did.
1: Well, it certainly puts the album in a different. I could almost, I could see how it would have more of a, a sort of emotional connection for you than probably most people who would listen to it. So, it's...
0: Yeah,
2: well, but if the if someone, I mean, if this new Star Wars movie came out and they wanted to tell that story, because you know we love little stories, mm-hmm. and we said here we have recreated the Rebel Force band. We hire musicians and singers. I mean, we've got Beatle copy bands, you know, looking for work and just copy what we produced in that era and go in and tell the stories and talk, you know, like R2-D2 or something in between, just making fun of it. It could, it could really, it, you know, it's so crazy. <laughs> in that one article, the guy said they thought it was very juvenile. It was juvenile. (laughs) A six-year-old is juvenile.
3: Yeah, well, it's a good, uh, I I think it walks the line well of of between making fun and having fun. Like, it's definitely having fun. You know, it's not, there's nothing negative about it. It's a very fun, just kind of like, you know, uh, appreciation of the characters and the story. And just, you know, just
2: having fun with music. And using that music from the 70s. You know that, that you know because the Bee Gees were doing their thing, yeah. and the Beach Boys and the Beatles were doing their thing, and we were doing our thing, and all of a sudden these characters took on their, you know, this e- enormous reality, for little five and six-year-olds like my son, and so you know we would we knew there was something, you know, happening inside of him, but this brought Danny. And I I need to send you a picture or two, you know, if in fact, you know, I don't know where you're going with any. But to just have anyone interested in the story, because the Star Wars phenomena, you know, has so many edges and so many fingertips. I mean, did you even realize that the Academy Award people won't even talk to Lucas because he didn't join?
1: Yeah, the Directors
0: Guild, right?
2: Yeah, he wouldn't even join. Yeah. He says, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't like the way you do anything. I don't want to be a part of it. They've never given him even a notice because he's not even a part of their academy.
1: Oh, I'm sure he cries himself to sleep on his huge pile of money every <laughs> night.
2: <laughs> oh, and one other part of the story that's crazy. Sure. Uh, my wife, and, uh, you know, at the time before I got married, my wife worked uh, in an office building right across from Universal uh, Studios. Mm -hmm. and lucas by the time my son was born lucas purchased this old building and made the star wars uh memorabilia building out of it right across from from universal studios so uh that was an interview so we were wrapped around by all these people you know and all of a sudden you know this crazy idea and and uh Gary Waite throws this little idea of living in the Star Wars at me. And this whole thing exploded because these little kids, this guy had seven or eight kids. Oh, wow. And they all were crazy about the movie. And it was refreshing, you know, at that time. They were, you know, they were uh, able to define the character so easily because of the way he produced his movies. Yeah. And so we just did what we did, and um, you know we just appreciate the fact that you're interested in knowing anything there could be known about it. You know.
1: Well, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, joining us, Pete. You have any more questions for Mr. Whitley?
3: No, that's pretty much it. I mean, I'm glad. You know, like I said, we try to uh, promote the the album as much as we can, because we, uh, you know, we discovered it not too long ago, you know, just uh, we just a couple of years ago, I found out about it and I shared it with Alex and we we've become big fans of it. So,
2: well, it's crazy. And, you know, if you set up a little marketing setup, you know, I mean, I'm sitting on all these tracks and I don't know, you know, what to do, but if there's a way to get them out there and if it's going to bring some happiness to some kids like it brought to my little son. Mm -hmm. then, you know, I'm all for it, you know, whatever it takes. And if I did another album, uh, it would probably be because someone will go to one of these science fiction fairs and all of a sudden there's a rebel force band playing Chewie the Rookie Wookiee and laughing their head off. (laughs) (laughs) That would
1: certainly make my convention if I showed up and the Rebel Force Band was reunited. Well,
2: someone has to sponsor it. I'm too old, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the next generation of the Rebel Force
2: Band. Well, whatever, you know. <laughs> you would have the Rebel Force Band Jr. Or, as the Osmond said, you know, the Osmond Brothers' second generation, you know. But, you know, it's never as good as the original. When the original <laughs> guys put this together, they had enormous desires to, to do something. This Patrick Michael Matthews, had an amazing voice. And he, when he sings Leah and that, that harmony, and I harmonized to those guys to make it work because I was used to doing the Letterman stuff. And I've got a, a Letterman tribute album that I did all the Letterman hits on. I've got all these crazy musicals. I actually, my son died uh, 27 years ago last Friday. Oh, wow. And we went to his grave and this whole story kind of came uh, on to me after st- sitting there realizing what do you do when someone gets a terminal illness and, and how in the world can they bury themselves in something that's so captivating that yeah. it, it eases their pain without just, you know, I mean, he took plenty of morphine just to stay, you know, because his top of his head was popping off. It's just a, it was just an enormous trial. And that was a part of his therapy, and it was a wonderful uh, legacy. I look at it, and I just think of him.
3: Oh, that's, that's, that's a nice note.
0: Uh...
2: Well, we're done. <laughs> <laughs>